welcome to PT Snacks Podcast. This is Casey, your host. And if you're tuning in for the very first time, what you should know is that this podcast is meant for physical therapists and physical therapist students who are looking to grow your fundamentals in bite-sized segments of time. And if you have been listening for a while, but you've been like, where is Casey? I have been on a a break from this podcast, mainly to focus on a new endeavor. It is called Ignite Clinical Institute. So super exciting. What this is, is I've basically teamed up with a mentor and a friend of mine to form a CCU company to where people who are looking to grow their practice can take a deeper dive and get CCUs at the same time. So if you want to check it out, I'm going to add it in a link below in the show notes, but it is igniteclinicalinstitute.com. We also offer free webinars. It's it's ended up being once a month so far, and we are just finished our fourth one last night um, at the time that I'm recording this episode, but Definitely join our email list if you want to stay up to date on what we're offering. We're working on expanding what we offer online as well, too, if you are not in the Houston region. But um, it's very exciting stuff. So that's where I've been. And my plan is to continue the podcast, although it may be more of a bi-monthly situation. I still really miss doing this. Um, and so I don't want to stop. Um But today, we are back with the topic of IT band syndrome. It's probably something you've heard of before, and you've probably seen a million Instagram posts or things of that nature of people trying to roll out their IT band on foam rollers, all that kind of stuff. It is a syndrome. So in our research, it's one of those diagnoses that I haven't really found a definitive cause for why this happens. So we're going to talk about what the current research says, what it looks like, what we look for in our patients, and how we typically treat it. And if that sounds good, then we're going to continue. So basically, let's just start with talking about what the IT band is. So it stands for iliotibial band. Um, and for the purpose of this episode. I'm just going to continue calling it the IT band because it's easier to say. But this is a basically distal fascial continuation of the tensor fascia lata, the gluteus medius, and the gluteus maximus. So it is superficial to the vastus lateralis, and it runs down and inserts onto the girty tubercle of the lateral tibia plateau, and partially to the supracondylar ridge of the lateral femur. There is an an anterior extension called the iliopatella band that connects the lateral patella, and it does prevent medial translation of the patella. This fascia functions as a knee extensor when the knee is less than 30 degrees flexed, and also a knee flexor when the knee exceeds 30 degrees of flexion. So probably because of the more posterior position relative to the lateral femoral epicondyle with increasing flexion. Now, the question is, if we all have this fascia, why do some people experience pain that we attribute to this fascia? So this diagnosis is considered a non-traumatic overuse injury. It's not an injury we usually hear about people were trying to cut and planted their leg wrong and all of a sudden their IT band just went kaput. Um, This is something, however, that is kind of 
controversial in the theory of why it might be aggravated. And the reality is, as with most things, the cause of the ITPN syndrome pain is probably multifactorial. So let's cover the theories next. One theory is that this band is aggravated from repetitive friction of the ITBN over the lateral epicondyle during flexion extension. So might make sense, right? If we see this a lot in people who are doing cyclic running or biking, things like that. So it might be more of, hey, we notice that there's contact between the ITBN and the lateral epicondyle at 30 degrees flexion, which is the angle of the knee during foot strike. Uh, maybe doing this over and over again causes it to get a little angry after a while. There are some anatomical studies that have not supported this gliding zone that we're talking about in cadavers. Keeping in mind, though, um, cadavers are not the same as living people. I don't think I need to expand that further. Um, another theory would be that there is a fat pad deep to the distal ITBN that might be being compressed. And since this fat pad is highly innervated, it may be that the repetitive force of what I just described might actually be irritating the fat pad itself, not the IT band. And another another theory is there is a fluid-filled IT band bursa in between the IT band and the lateral epicondyle. Maybe it's this structure that is the pain aggravator, right? So all that to be said, it's important that we also look at the big picture of the patient and what environment they were in and things like that. So some risk factors that we've identified in a patient's environment might be if they were running on a tilted surface, they were doing a lot of hill running, maybe they had some training technique errors or an abrupt change in their training intensity, like they were really sick in the middle of their marathon training and they picked right up again after a week or two of bed rest and tried to start off where they left off or maybe just make up for lost time. Never seen that before. Or even just changes in, hey, I changed the type of running shoe that I was in or um, just fill in the blank. There's so many things there, right? Anatomical factors that have been looked at in studies have been whether patients have an increased tibial torsion angle, whether they have hip abduction or hip external rotation weakness, foot pronation, medial compartment arthritis that causes genuverum, which they speculate might cause increased tension on the IT band. Um, And there's even one study by Miller et al. that they looked at these patients who were diagnosed with ITBN after an exhaustive run, keyword exhaustive, and the runners with the ITBN syndrome demonstrated a greater rear foot inversion angle at heel strike compared to the controls. So they looked at that and thought maybe it contributes to higher peak knee or tibial internal rotation velocity, which therefore would increase torsional torsional strain on the ITBN. Again, other things to consider. The good thing about all of these factors is you have more things to look at in your patients if one doesn't line up, right? So with these patients, I already kind of briefly mentioned who typically gets it, and it was actually first supposedly seen in marine recruits in 1975. But we see this a lot in long-distance runners, cyclists, even some skiers, hockey players, basketball and soccer players, Um, A lot of the research has been looked at in runners, though. So 
they've found in ITBN syndrome, 5 to 14% of runners get this. And it's the leading cause of lateral knee pain and the second cause overall in the runner population specifically. So again, they they consider it to be maybe things that have rapid and prolonged cycling of knee, the knee through flexion and extension. These patients are typically going to complain of sharp pain on the outer aspect of the knee, especially when the heel strikes the floor, and it can even radiate to the outer thigh or calf. It's typically worse when they're running or coming down the stairs, and there may even be an audible snapping sensation when the knee bends from the band moving over that bony tubercle. You may even see potential swelling on the outer side of the knee too. So if that patient is walking into a clinic, what are we going to do? Typically, as with most things, we're going to poke at it and see if it's actually injured in the first place or aggravated. So to find the the spot we're looking for, you're going to palpate along the distal IT band, which be superior to the joint line and inferior to the lateral femoral epicondyle. You would still look at your typical things you would in any exam, things like range of motion, strength, strength of like the hip abductors, external rotators, um, neuromuscular control. If they're a runner or um, an athlete, asking them about their training style, um, what environment they're typically training in, did anything change in conjunction with the onset of their injury? Or has it been going on for a long time? And if so, has it gotten better or worse or the same? The special tests that we often find in literature are the noble tests, where the patient's in supine and you start them with their knee flex to 90 degrees, palpate the lateral femoral epicondyle, and then you basically extend their knee from 90 to zero. So a positive on that test is they're going to have pain at around 30 to 40 degrees. And You'd want to take a measurement with a goniometer, um, as great as our eyeball accuracy is. Um, And that's something that you can document and track with time. Obers is also a pretty common one where the patient is in sideline with their knee flexed to 90 degrees and their hip is in a little bit of abduction and extension. I said abduction. And then what you're trying to do is see if you can adduct or the patient can adduct their hip basically past the level of the table on the side, if they're laying on their side. I find that that test, I think it's kind of hard to actually block their pelvis to make sure that they're not just doing a bunch of like relative lumbar side bending, but that's why it's good to combine several special tests together. So now you have two that you can look at. Now, imaging can be useful to rule out things like OA, fractures, patellar misalignment, A radiograph is not going to be really helpful to see this diagnosis, but again, it helps rule out those other things, and you can still look for hyperintensities at the lateral epicondyle. On an ultrasound, you may be able to see some abnormal ITBN thickening, and ultrasounds can be great because they're being seen more and more in PT clinics. Now, obviously, and it is really tempting to just want your patient to have something so you can actually diagnose it, but it's important to rule out other things that can cause lateral knee pain. So some differentials that you would also want to consider are whether that patient might have a stress fracture of the lateral tibial plateau, a lateral meniscal tear, a lateral compartment of the knee OA, lateral collateral ligament strain, biceps femoris tendinopathy, or maybe something 
they have a hip pathology and it's referring down to the lateral knee, patellofemoral syndrome or popliteal tendinopathy. Notice that these mention different structures. So having a knowledge of how those different tissues and structures respond should be able to help you differentiate between those. And as I mentioned, you know, it could be something referring from another body region. So it's always important to make sure you're screening out the joints that are above and below where they're complaining of to make sure you're not missing something that's could be really big, right? Now, then let's say we diagnose our patient with IT band syndrome. We've ruled out everything else that it could possibly be. It makes sense with their history and all that. Now what? So typically the first line of treatment is non-operative. And from a global view, you are basically trying to, from the get-go, identify the aggravating factors in your patient and try and take that away while you're calming everything down. Then from there, you're trying to help them rebuild their capacity for stress, which depends on what you found in your exam, right? Did you notice that they have some weakness or neuromuscular impairments? Maybe their running form is off or they need help with their overall training. Like maybe it's a programming error. You basically want to help get them to the point where they're close to being able to perform and then ease them back into the level of activity that they were at before. Everybody's a little different, and this episode is not going to be centered on treatment for the IT band. Um, I think just recognize why you were doing what you were doing, and if it makes sense with your treatment plan, and it's in line with your patient's goals and desires, and as much with research as possible, taking some sort of middle ground there might be helpful. So most patients tend to do decently well with this, um, but there are surgical options for those that fail conservative treatment. And for the purpose of this episode, I'm not going to dive into what they are and what the most evidence-based are um, because I'm not a surgeon and I don't really want to speak on things that I'm not an expert in. Um, but just so that you're aware of them and maybe if you're rounding with a surgeon, um, it'd be pretty cool to talk about what their opinions are of these different techniques, but I'm going to read them off for you. So some are the percutaneous or open IT band release, IT band lengthening with AZ plasty, an open IT band bursectomy and an arthroscopic IT band debridement. So those are there. Now, If you have any questions on maybe things that I mentioned in this episode, or um, it could be anything, really, just let me know. You can reach out at ptsnackspodcast at gmail.com. I love hearing from you guys, and there's been several that have reached out over the, (laughs) it's crazy to say that it's been several years, but really... I would definitely look into our new Ignite page because there's going to be a lot more in-depth things where we really cover some valuable topics that I think a lot of people in physical therapy have questions about. So check it out. Um, Let me know what you think. And I would definitely sign up for that email list if you want to stay up to date. If you don't, that's just fine. Don't worry about it. But I hope you guys have a great rest of your day and until next time.